Well, we are back tonight for a great study of a call to prayer. It has been an absolute joy to make our way up to this point in J.C. Ryle's classic work, and I trust that the Lord has great things in store for us as we continue our discussion where we left off last week. Um, as we begin this section, just allow me to open our study in a word of prayer, and then I will need a volunteer, actually two volunteers, to read from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, one volunteer to read verses 1 through 7. And another volunteer to read verses 8 through 15. Thank you, sir. Let me pray, and we will dive into our study tonight. God, where else can we go but you? For you have the words of eternal life, and you are the God who is. You are the God who has created all things and sustains all things for your glory, by the word of your power, and by your grace for the eternal spiritual good of your people. God, it is an unfathomable mystery that you sent your son into this world as we celebrate the Christmas season to reflect on how he took on flesh, lived a life without sin. He died on the cross as a substitute for all who would ever believe. He rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And he rules and reigns even now at your right hand forever and ever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the last day. And as those who gratefully bow down to him in this life, even now, Lord, we ask that you would make us into his likeness. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of how selfish and prideful and self-seeking we can be. Help us to stand firm in our convictions. Help us to be men and women of prayer, Lord, as we're going to learn about tonight. Help us to be devoted to holiness and to intentional, intimate communion with you, not just to bring our requests before you, as great as that is and as important as that is, but Father, really just to be with you. Cultivate that in our hearts, Lord, even now as as we do this study. May we be transformed by the truths that we discuss together as a group. Give us wisdom to accurately interpret your word by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Guide our conversation that it would be edifying to one another, and even if we come to points of disagreement, help us to show grace on areas that are not of foundational importance to our faith, but are important nonetheless. Um, help us to to uh, respectfully disagree if necessary, uh, but also enjoy unity on the essentials of our common salvation. We love you, God, and we give you thanks. We commit this study to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Daniel 6, starting in verse 1. of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps could give, should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, 
The counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Eight to fifteen. Yes, sir. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast in, into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by, came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Amen. Well, thank you for volunteering to read Hannah and Seth. Um, I think we all know the rest of the story. Daniel is delivered into the lion's den. He survives that encounter by virtue of an angel of the Lord shutting the mouth of the lions. And then uh, ultimately, in a twist of irony, those who had Daniel thrown into uh, the uh, den of lions are themselves thrown into the den of lions, and then the lions devour them um, at that point. So uh, we're very familiar with this narrative in the Old Testament. One of the most famous that we grow up learning um, is as young as VBS. But um, there's really one point of application that I think we need to take away from this as we seek to dive into what Ryle is going to be discussing over the next couple of sections. And that point is this. Daniel was able to stand firm in his faith against theological and, and uh, practical or personal compromise. And there's one fundamental reason why he was able to do that, and it's this. He was a man of prayer. Daniel was a man of prayer. And as a result, because Daniel communed with the living God, he was able, in the face of great personal compromise, great theological compromise, to commit idolatry and to not be able to engage in that intimate communion that he had with God as a prophet, he was able to maintain his conviction, to pray to the Lord, to keep his faith a vital part of his life, the foundation of his life. And he stood, and God delivered him from the hand of his oppressors. And there's a takeaway point that we need to be aware of tonight, my friends. If we are to stand firm in our faith and resist the temptation to compromise theologically or practically, we must first be people of prayer. My friends, prayer is the secret to theological faithfulness, and prayer is the secret to holiness. And that's what we're going to be talking about here over the next couple of chapters tonight. These next basically four pages in Ryle's work, 
I pray that we will, as we leave here, that we would be further propelled and motivated to be faithful to God's word in every aspect of our lives, whether theologically concerned or personally concerned, um, and that we would grow in our prayer life corporately and individually as well. So I'm going to kick off here by reading the first three paragraphs under the subheading, Vast Difference. Uh, There's a little baby paragraph there at the top, which is like one sentence in the next two that I'm going to read out loud. And what we're going to see here in this section is Ryle's going to contrast two different types of Christians. It's very important at the outset that I emphasize this. He is talking about Christians in this section. And as we read these first three paragraphs, what I want us to reflect on are two very important questions that I think will allow us to engage in some good, fruitful conversations. Here's here's the two questions that I want us to think about. What are some marks of a spiritually immature Christian? That's the first question I want us to ask and reflect on as I read these three paragraphs. Now, you're not allowed to use the eight marks that I gave you, so go ahead and turn those upside down, please, unless you've... I'm sure some of you might have already uh, put some in your mind, but... um, I want you guys to think really practically. Think about your own life. Think about what you've seen. Think about um, what you've learned about the difference between a spiritual Christian or a mature Christian and an unspiritual or a, a immature Christian. I want you all to think about maybe what you've encountered or what you've learned about that subject as we read these paragraphs. And then the second question that I want us to address is this question. And this really feeds in well to what we talked about over Encounter Weekend. And I'll repeat the question so y'all don't forget. Um, But the second question is this, is it biblical or honoring to God to merely be content with being saved? Or does God call us to more in this life than simply believing the gospel? And I think that these paragraphs are really going to cut to the quick as to what we need to think about this subject as believers. So first section here, let me read these three paragraphs and then we'll talk a little bit about these questions. Ryle writes, I ask whether you pray because diligence in prayer is the secret of imminent holiness. You'll notice the footnote at the bottom. All imminent means, uh, it means plain or obvious or visible. So he's saying diligence in prayer is the secret to visible holiness or obvious holiness. Holiness that can be manifestly evident in somebody's life. And he continues. He says, without controversy, there is a vast difference among true Christians. There is an immense interval between the foremost and the hindermost in the army of God. That is the greatest and the least. They are all fighting the same good fight, but how much more valiantly some fight than others. They are all doing the Lord's work, but how much more some do than others. They are all light in the Lord, but how much more brightly some shine than others. They are all running the same race, but how much faster some get on than others. They all love the same Lord and Savior, but how much more some love him than others? I ask any true Christian whether this is not the case. Are not these things so? And last paragraph that we'll read before discussion. There are some of the Lord's people who seem never able to get on from the time of their conversion. They are born again, but they remain babes all their lives. You hear from them the same old experience. You observe in them the same want of spiritual appetite, the same want of interest in anything beyond their own little circle that you observed ten years ago. They are pilgrims indeed, but pilgrims like the Gibeonites of old. Their bread is always dry and moldy, their shoes always old, and their garments always rent and torn. Joshua 9. I say this with sorrow and grief, Ryle concludes, but I ask any real Christian... 
Is it not true? So what do you guys think? Back to those two questions. First question, of course, we're going to start there. What are some marks or some distinctives, some characteristics that come to your mind right out of the gate without really having prepared to give an answer regarding a spiritually immature Christian? What stands out to you in your thinking, at least, when you think about that particular type of believer? Someone who's spiritually immature. Someone who's in Christ, but you know they really haven't gotten past just entrance into the kingdom of God through believing the gospel. I think, like, at least I can say this is true for me, like, they could be a lot less focused on the big picture, like, more focused on my personal walk, my faith, like... Very individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a spiritually immature Christian is very arrogant. They think of themselves highlier than they should. They don't really acknowledge and understand the brokenness that that comes along with being a, a servant of Christ and the inadequacy that we truly have. And I see immature Christians every day that are arrogant mm-hmm. and think that they have something to bring before the throne of God when they have nothing. To me, that shows immaturity because right. they don't get past. They think, okay, well, I've, I've said this prayer and I'm good. And now I just live my life and it's what I want. And, and to me... But I agree with y'all. I mean, but I, I just, to me, it's a, there's a, there's an arrogancy because a true Christian has a brokenness and an inadequacy and knows. And I'm not saying all the time you don't come crawling everywhere you go. But right. what I mean is there's a, you don't feel worthy. Right. You don't feel worthy to say, you know, yeah. you know to speak. And, and, you know, it's been well said that a proud Christian is a contradiction in terms because those who recognize the depths of of our own sin and the lengths that God went to redeem us, we immediately, when we reflect on that reality, remember that man, we're nothing but dust of the earth. We're nothing. God has extended grace upon grace upon grace to us, and he gives us everything. And he not only gives us salvation, but he gives us eternal reward. He sanctifies us. He allows us to glorify him. And that should foster deep-rooted humility in our own lives as believers. So I think that's a really good uh, insight. And you guys, of course, terrific insights as well. Any other thoughts on the subject of a spiritually immature Christian? Lack of joy. Lack of joy. Kind of coming off of that discontentment. Um. Does everybody know what joy is? Just to make sure everybody, because that's a word we throw around a lot as Christians, but I want to make sure, especially our youth, I want to make sure that y'all know what it means biblically to have joy. Does somebody want to answer that? What is joy biblically? Contentment that's not based on your circumstances, that's rooted in the Lord. That's it. It's an internal, settled disposition of contentment that is unshakable or, or unchangeable depending upon external circumstances. You can be joyful and be mourning. Mm-hmm. You can be joyful and be happy. You can be joyful and any other emotion on that spectrum. Um, but as Christians, we have joy at all times because we recognize that 
We're the adopted children of a sovereign God who's working all things together for his glory and our eternal good in Christ Jesus. And that in the gospel, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. So we recognize as believers that joy is always going to be a part of our life. Our emotions, we're going to ride a roller coaster. I know me as well as anybody can ride that roller coaster. Y'all know me pretty well. Y'all have seen me ride that roller coaster a few times. So... Um, but I always have joy because of who I am in Christ. And if you're in Christ tonight, you do as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think lack, lack of joy, lack of, I think if, if you, and, and just to put a bow on everything, I think a lack of reminding themselves that I do have joy. I'm just not, I'm not reminding myself of that reality. Which can only come if you're in the word. Exactly. So that, that, exactly. Lack, that lack of, My experience as a new believer, I was in the Word, but just not knowing how to be in the sure. Word. So maybe just, that's kind of getting into community. Never mind, I'm going to stop yeah. talking. Well, well no, it's, and it's good. I think as immature Christians, we tend to twist verses to say things like, mm. Working all things right. together for yeah, my good. Yeah. You're working all things together for like my the good. Selfishness of it doesn't it. say my good. It doesn't say oh. that he's going to work it together for my good. It says he's going to work together for his good. Yeah, that's good thoughts. Good thoughts. Um, good. Any other any other um, thoughts there? Well, I have eight. Oh, Brittany. I saw your I was just thinking about somebody who sits in church, just goes through the motions, you know, every Sunday because it's either what they were brought up doing or what they think they should do, but they don't, they still, they believe, but they don't know. Christianity is something they do on Sunday and maybe Wednesday if they don't have anything else going on. Certainly not Sunday evening, Wednesday maybe if the meal's intact, but you know, we're Sunday morning, that's... That's 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 what we're that's that's what we're focused on. No, I, I agree. I think I think sadly there's a lot of true believers who've been born again. They've tasted the grace of God, but Christianity's just you know I I don't I, I don't I don't, I don't cuss very I don't cuss very much. I don't drink very much. You know I I, I give. I'm, I'm a I'm a Republican and I go to church on Sunday mornings. So uh, you know that's 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 the that's kind of the mindset I think from a lot. I think and, one foot. Here, one foot in the world. Yeah, kind of trying to straddle that world spiritual realm um, line, if you will. So I think I think those are some good thoughts. Any others before I just go down this list? Well, I have eight marks. Uh, th- this is original to me. I know Mark Dever has nine marks of a healthy church. I guess Dewey Doble has eight marks of a spiritually immature Christian. Uh, so uh, that's that was that was supposed to be funny. I mean, this isn't. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. There we go. Yeah, this this you isn't. Yet? No, it's not copyrighted. And, and frankly, I don't know how the the jury's still out. How good this is, anyways. I'm not. I'm no Mark Dever, but I was today today as I was preparing preparing for this um, lesson tonight. Um, when I when I thought about spiritual immaturity, my mind went to First Corinthians. the The whole letter of First Corinthians was was written to a church that was rampant with spiritual immature believers. And they had all kinds of problems in it. And on the basis of all the problems they had, I found, at least this is me just kind of synthesizing the whole book as a whole, these are eight that stood out to me. And I I just want us to go through these together just 
we don't have to exhaust these, but I think for us and for the benefit of the listener, th- this may get us somewhere in terms of just some very concrete examples of um, what the Bible explicitly states and, and alludes to with regard to spiritual immaturity in the Christian life. So number one, first mark, a tendency to be factious. Um, and, and if you don't know what the word factious means, I, I, I define it there. Uh, that word factious just means that um, you're somebody who creates division. Um, and in the context of this mark, I said that um, being factious in, in the terms of a spiritual immature Christian is creating division in a local church over issues that are either not definitional to Christianity or definitional to a church's theological tradition. So let me kind of tease that out a little bit. So when I say definitional to Christianity, I'm talking about foundational things you must believe to be saved, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ's death, the gospel, substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection, things that are just like the saints have confessed these truths from the first century onward. If you don't believe them, no matter how sincere you are, you are not saved, right? We have to be dogmatic. And if anybody rejects those, we have to come to them and, and show them their error from the scripture. We can't tolerate that in the local church is something we can just agree to disagree on. Foundational Christian issues is not something we can agree to disagree on. We've got to know where we stand on those issues. Mm-hmm. But we also need to know where we stand on things that are definitional to our church's theological tradition. As Baptists, it's not enough just to say, well, you can join our church, but not believe in believers' baptism. No, you can't do it. You're not a Baptist. You don't, you don't have a right to come to our, and be a member of our Baptist church. And if that's offensive to anybody, it's not because we don't love them. It's not because they're not in Christ. We love our Presbyterian brethren. We love our, our, our Lutheran brethren and others who baptize infants, right? But to be Baptist is to have a distinct understanding of the new covenant and the signs of the new covenant, the administration of those signs of the new covenant to God's people in the local church. Um, congregational polity. Now, again, you know, there's disagreements regarding um, the role that elders should play in a local church, but Southern Baptists and Baptists broadly are a congregational people. We affirm the calling and the movement, the movements of God in the context of a local church um, that, that come from the leadership of the God-ordained elders who serve in that capacity. That's how Baptists have historically operated as a denomination. Um, you know, there's others that we could talk about. Uh, the Lord's Supper going to only those who've made a credible profession of faith. We don't give the Lord's Supper to unbelievers. We don't give the Lord's Supper to infants of believing parents. We only give the Lord's Supper to those who've made a credible profession of faith. So these are things, again, that as Baptists, we must be on the same page on. And if people in the ch- that want to either join the church or they're members of the church and they have issues with these distinctives of Baptist theology, piety, and practice, we in love try to correct those. Ideally, they don't join the church if they disagree on those issues. Uh, It would save a lot of problems down the road. But um, it's just important that we recognize being factious is when you cause division over things that are either not definitional to Orthodox Christianity, that is, what do you have to believe to be a Christian, or um, it's somebody who is divisive over things that are foundational or definitional to your church's theological tradition. What does it mean to be a Baptist? 
What must I do and practice in the local church context to be a Baptist, to have a Baptist ecclesiology? That word ecclesiology just means doctrine of the church. Um, ecclesia, church, ology, study of. There, there you go. There's the etymology of that uh, particular term. But you can see more about that. Of um, <laughs> He gives a definition of a word and follows it with another big word. Etymology. 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 Just the, wor- the way the word is put together. The study of words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so um, I'm not going to get in, we're, again, we're not going to get into this too much, but um, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through chapter 4, verse 21, um, you'll see Paul addressing how the, the, the Corinthian Christians were arguing over which leader they respected most in their church, and that led to great division. Um, these were divisions over personality preferences, and we can definitely say on the basis of the Word of God that was a mark of spiritual immaturity because their division was not over orthodoxy to Christianity or orthodoxy to their particular local church, which at that time uh, there wasn't any denominations. So um, it, it, was, it was divisive behavior. Number two, Mark. A tendency to be tolerant of open, unrepentant sin in the local church but opposed to the administration of biblical discipline. Uh, if you read 1 Corinthians 5, you'll see that incest was being tolerated in the Corinthian congregation, and Paul strongly rebukes that church for not administering church discipline in that context. And we need to be aware that spiritually immature Christians and unbelievers, on the basis of 1 Corinthians, they do not take sin ser- seriously. They're, they're apathetic towards sin, and they're also apathetic or vehemently against the administration of church discipline as our Lord laid it out in Matthew 18. So that, that's a sure, uh, surefire mark of spiritual immaturity if you're open uh, or apathetic to unrepentant sin and you're also opposed to the disciplinary actions of the local church towards that sin, which again, is not necessarily intended to punish. That's a consequence of church discipline, but the primary objective of church discipline is to restore, to bring about repentance, to purify the church. Um, That's why church discipline is in place. Distinctive number three, mark number three, a tendency to allow conflict to remain unresolved. Um, In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, uh, we find spiritual immature Christians not pursuing reconciliation with those whom they have conflict. What you see in that context is you see Christians being more prone and more willing to go and and settle matters out of court, particularly uh, in the legal realm, instead of trying to resolve their conflict with one another. As Paul will instruct in that section, if you read it, that's not how things are to be done as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, When it comes to conflict resolution in the local church, there's a biblical process we must follow, and it is our fundamental responsibility to do whatever it takes to handle those affairs within the body. Mark number four of a spiritually immature Christian on the basis of 1 Corinthians is this, a tendency to have a low view of biblical sexuality. If you read from verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6 on through the end of of, uh, chapter 7, you'll notice that um, the, the, the spiritual infants or the spiritual immature Christians in Corinth did not wholeheartedly embrace the sexual ethic of God's word. They, they didn't have a correct view of marriage. They didn't have a correct view of singleness. They didn't have a correct view of God's purpose for sex. They, they, they didn't understand the distinctive biblical Christian ethic of human sexuality. And if you ever find a person who, who doesn't quite understand biblical sexuality, again, this is on the basis of 1 Corinthians, that could be definitely a sign 
of spiritual immaturity. And uh, we even find in 1 Corinthians 6.10 that if you're walking in an unrepentant lifestyle of sexual immorality, then that is evidence that you're not a Christian. So, um, you know, it could be evidence that you're just spiritually immature if you're not on par with biblical sexuality. It could be evidence that you're not saved as well. Um, But number five, Spiritual immature Christians have a tendency to flaunt one's liberty and cause others to stumble. We see this clearly exhibited in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians. Um, You see a lack of discernment amongst spiritual immature Christians when contemplating, or I guess you could say a lack of contemplating, how their actions might cause another believer to stumble. In that context, there was a lot of debate as to whether Christians should be allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols today. There's debate on should Christians dance, should Christians watch R-rated movies, should Christians drink alcohol, etc., etc. And really the application point from those chapters in our current context is simply this. You may have freedom to do those things biblically, but when you do those things, you need to be mindful of, am I possibly going to cause somebody to stumble by carrying out this particular behavior? A mark of a spiritually mature Christian is one that is so selfless, so others-oriented, that they will not do anything that could potentially cause another brother to stumble when they're made aware that doing that particular behavior caused them. So I'm not saying that when you're at a restaurant, you can't, for those of you who are of age, you can't have a beer. What I'm saying is if you're there with another believer and it's known that they're going to have an issue or might feel uncomfortable with you having a beer, you, you don't need to have that beer. You need to make sure you're being very careful not to cause other people to stumble just because you don't feel conviction about not doing a particular behavior. Number six, um, spiritually immature Christians have a low view of God's design for marital relations. And this isn't particularly sexually oriented. This is more authoritarian, submissive oriented here. So in 1 Corinthians 11, um, we see that there was some, some confusion as to the dynamic that a husband and a wife should have modeled amongst one another. Paul reiterates this in Ephesians 5 where he talks about how wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to uh, tenderly and graciously yet lead firmly their wives into godliness and, and in terms of providing for them um, as the covenant head of the household. So that's, that's something that uh, spiritually immature Christians can, on the basis of 1 Corinthians, have difficulties with. It's a very hard thing for a woman to submit to a woman in charge, much more probably a man who's in charge of them at times, right? You know, men can be really dumb, and we as men can have a difficulty in leading gently and compassionately with our wives. Like there, there, There's definitely tensions and there's definitely issues that we're going to have to battle as sinful yet being sanctified human beings, Christians. But biblically, marital relations is the husband is the covenant head of that house. He's the spiritual authority over the wife and the child or multiple children. And the wife submits to the husband's leadership. And Paul expounds that in 1 Corinthians 11. Number seven, um, spiritually immature Christians have a tendency to show partiality towards others. If you look through the second half of 1 Corinthians 11 and you go through um, chapters 12 through 14, you're going to see a lot of partiality modeled. You're going to see it modeled regarding how the Lord's Supper was administered. You're going to see it modeled in terms of uh, how people regarded people's competency in the local church regarding spiritual giftedness. So partiality, as we've been learning in James, is never to be condoned amongst the body of Christ. If you have a tendency to be partial towards others, 
And just to remind you of what the definition of partiality is, it's to elevate somebody on the basis of external circumstances and in the process of doing so to devalue others who do not fit those external circumstances. Um, we are not to do that as believers. Um, that is what we find uh, reiterated again and again and again by Paul here in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 through 14, second half of 11 through, verse, or through chapter 14. Lastly, go ahead. I just feel like that particular one is so important, not any over any of the other ones, but because right. I feel like that's kind of what makes your, your church a community is making sure we don't have that partiality Absolutely. that separates or segregates. Absolutely. Well, that's the gospel, right? In Christ, we're co-heirs. We're equal, um, dif- differing levels of giftedness, different eternal reward. But fundamentally, at our core, we're equally washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are equally saved. And in God's eyes, who ha- He has no partiality. He doesn't value one Christian above another. He deals with us in accordance with His purposes, but there is no partiality. There's no elevating somebody on the basis of an external circumstance and then devaluing somebody else on that external on, on, talking about Christ. yeah talking about how god how god views uh, the believer there, there is no elevating or devaluing um in god's economy but the last mark before we dive back into ryle um really briefly here is um spiritually immature christians have a tendency to tolerate false doctrine and by false doctrine we're talking again doctrine that is foundational to orthodox christianity and foundational or definitional to a theological tradition that is um, the, uh, distinctive of a particular local church. So again, Baptists need to believe Baptist theology. Um, Presbyterians need to be need to believe Presbyterian theology in terms of how the church is governed, and so on and so forth. Um, and that kind of piggybacks on what we talked about with Mark number one. But just so you know, what was talked about in First Corinthians in chapter fifteen, we see self-identifying Christians denying the reality of Christ's bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection of Christ is definitional to the gospel and definitional to Orthodox Christianity. They also denied the reality that believers would be physically bodily raised up um, on the last day. So there's a duality of the denial of the resurrection there in the middle of the first century by the Corinthian believers. And both of those realities must be affirmed to be an Orthodox Christian. Paul vehemently addresses that issue and um, we should likewise make sure that in our midst, we're safeguarding Christian orthodoxy and we're safeguarding, in our context, Baptistic orthodoxy. Um, those ecclesiological distinctives of Baptist theology, piety, and practice. So does anybody have any questions on those marks or anyone share any other thoughts on those marks before um, we summarize all this with our second question that I think you all probably know the answer to. It's kind of a loaded question. But does anyone have any other thoughts before briefly touching on that second question there? So is it biblical or honoring to God to merely be content with being saved? What do you guys think? Well, no. Is it enough? Yeah. Yeah. No, right? Given that we were given the Great Commission, I'm sorry, your job doesn't end when you've been saved. That's right. Or there is no age at which you can clock out of your duty. You know, there is no passing the baton. I mean, if there were such a thing, maybe people who weren't nearly 100 years old would not have been given children. Amen. You know, and led to wait for that long. Like, there's just, there isn't a time that you get to say, like, okay, I'm done. You serve until your last day. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I couldn't have said any better myself, Sam. I appreciate you for tying everything up there. Would somebody be willing to read that um, final paragraph on page 11 and then um, another volunteer to read just that top little section on page 12? I can read the paragraph. Thank you. And who wants to take that second one on page 12 right at the top? Michelle, you want to take it? All right, thank you. Go ahead, Emma. Take it away. There are others of the Lord's people who seem to be always advancing. They grow like the grass after rain. They increase like Israel and Egypt. They press on like Gideon, though sometimes faint, yet always pursuing. They are even they they are ever adding grace to grace and faith to faith and strength to strength. Every time you meet them, their hearts seem larger and their spiritual stature mm-hmm. taller and stronger. Every every year they appear to see more, know more believe more, and feel more in their religion. Mm. They not only have good works to prove the reality of their faith, but they are zealous of them. They not only do well, but they are unwearied in well-doing. They attempt great things, and they do great things. When they fail, they try again. And when they fall, they are soon up again. And all this time, they think themselves poor, unprofitable servants, and fancy they do nothing at all. Luke seventeen ten. These are these are those who make religion lovely and beautiful in the eyes of God. Amen. And uh, Michelle, just that mm-hmm. those two small um, paragraphs right above that subheading. They rest praise even from the uncovered and win golden opinions even from the selfish men of the world. It does one good to see, to be with, and to hear them. When you meet them, you could believe that, like Moses, they had just come out from the presence of God. When you part with them, you feel warmed by their company, and if your soul had been near a fire. I know such people are rare. I only ask, are there not many such? I don't know about you guys, but that reads extremely beautiful, but when I look at my own life, sometimes I think, man, is that me? I don't know, do you guys, did y'all feel the conviction reading that? You're thinking, man, like, is that, is that me? You know, that's where we want to get to, right? We want to get there. And we see glimmers of it by God's grace, right? He's doing work in and through us. But that's the goal, that, that description, that beautiful description that Ryle talks about there regarding what a spiritual, mature Christian looks like. And um, I pray that we would all be modeled, uh, that our lifestyles would all be modeled by those uh, distinctives and uh, by by God's grace and in accordance with this this um, literary work here that we have, he gives us some clues as to how practically we can work to get to that point in our own lifestyles. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the next two paragraphs, and then I'll have somebody read the third paragraph in that section before we stop and, and have a little bit of time for discussion. But let's look practically. How do we get to this 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 walk of life that Ryle's talking about? Let's let's look and see what Ryle has to say. Can I get a volunteer to read that third paragraph, though? You'll notice it right there above the prayer's power. You want to take it, Brittany? All right. I'll take the first two. So the reason for the difference, the so what, how do we get here? This is what Ryle has to say. He says, now how can we account for the difference that I have just described? What is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 
arises from different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently or visibly holy pray little, and those who are eminently or visibly holy pray much. I dare say this opinion will startle some readers. I have little doubt that many look on eminent holiness as a kind of special gift which none but a few must pretend to aim at. They admire it at a distance in books. They think it beautiful when they see an example near themselves. But as to its being a thing within the reach of any but a very few, such a notion never seems to enter their minds. In short, they consider it a kind of monopoly granted to a few favored believers, but certainly not to all. I believe that spiritually as well as natural greatness depends in a high degree on the faithful use of means within everybody's reach. Of course, I do not say we have a right to expect a miraculous grant of intellectual gifts, but this I do say, that when a man is once converted to God, his progress in holiness will be much in accordance with his own diligence in the use of God's appointed means. And I assert confidently that the principal means by which most believers have become great in the church of Christ is the habit of diligent private prayer. Amen. Thank you for reading that, Brittany. So what's Ralph saying here? What's the, what, what, in his words, from his perspective, is a key way in which that beautiful, biblically, um, biblically sound description that he just led into, what is the secret to get in there, at least one of the secrets to get in there? What do y'all think? What you do when no one's watching. What you do when no one's watching. And what particularly? Prayer. Prayer. It's exactly right, guys. Prayer is the secret to growing in your personal holiness, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in your moral character. Prayer is the means God uses. That's what that word means. Notice that footnote there at the bottom. Means is simply a word that's used to refer to a, an instrument or, or something that God uses in order to accomplish something. It's like a tool. Prayer is a means or a tool that God uses to further conform us into the moral character of Jesus Christ. And as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And as a result of us drawing near to God and God drawing near to us, the end result or the outcome is that we become more like him. We begin to reflect his character all the more as we draw near to him. Um, it's fascinating. If you look at James 4, 7 to 10, I just want to read this text here. Very applicable text to what Ryle's saying. This text is a picture of how we should regard prayer as believers. Starting in verse 7, I just want to read the text. James writes, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, if I ever preach on this text, if we ever get to this part of the book of James, um, here's, here's an outline of that passage. The, the, how, how should we regard prayer? What's the posture I think, I think this outline um, suits the text well, and 
I think it, it ultimately will help us in getting the ultimate outcome of what we want to get from prayer, which is an enriched spiritual life, an enriched communion with God, a more vibrant manifestation of Jesus Christ working in and through us in the presence of others. Um, verse 7 Regarding the posture of prayer, prayer needs to be done in submissiveness to God's authority. Repeat that. Submissiveness to God's authority. So being submissive to his authority. Repeat the whole sentence. Oh, um, <laughs> our, 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 our posture or attitude of prayer needs to be done in submission to God's authority. Verse 7. Number 2, I, I would say that our posture of prayer, I can give you these if you want them later, if you're writing them down. Um, our, our, our posture of prayer, our attitude in prayer needs to be done with eagerness. Number 2, with eagerness to draw near to God in repentance and confession. Repentance of sin and confession of sin. Verses 8 and 9. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then Notice this. Notice what follows that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your, your minds, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Confession and then repentance. Now, Lord, I know that you're a good father. I know who I am in Christ. I'm going to go and start having victory over this. And then, and then verse 10, chapter 4 of James. Um, prayer needs to be done with humility before God. As Alan mentioned earlier, um, we don't need to be the Pharisee when we come before God from Luke 18. We need, to be the, we need to be the tax collector. We need to be the one who recognizes who God is and who we are as we come before the word of God. We, we grow in that awareness that God is holy and we are sinful. We're even lower than the dust of the earth. The dust of the earth actually fulfills its God-ordained intention. We do not because we're sinners. Um, so when you have that accurate view of us intrinsically, all that's going to want you make all that's going to want to make you do is is bow your knees to God with humility, cast all of your cares upon Him, and ultimately in doing so, as Ryle has said, and I believe is also consistent with Scripture, we're going to grow into Christ's image over time. There's never been I guess you could say it like this really. There's never been a person in human history who's been a Christian that became really really closely like Jesus but they didn't have a vibrant prayer life. Vibrant prayer life and a vibrant spiritual life, a life that reflects Jesus Christ, those are two sides of the same coin. You gotta have both. You can't have one without the other. That's what Ryle's saying, and I would say that's, that's really what the overarching message of Scripture would be saying for us. Does anyone have any thoughts on that thought or on that issue or um, any comments you all wanna make on that before we move on? When I, when I think about, like, mourning, like, our sin, it makes me think of um, the question, you know, do you regret anything in life? Well, no, because then I wouldn't be who I am today. And then it's like, I think I lived in that place for so long sometimes. It was like, and then it's like, no. Yeah. There are things I've done wrong that I should be remorseful for mm-hmm. that I would do again, not just be, well, if I wouldn't have done them, I wouldn't be right, there's, who I was, you know. Right, and, and, like, no, and there's a reality, right, on the one hand. We, we recognize the sovereign purposes of God. We recognize that even our sin was predestined by God and, and was, was permitted to take place to accomplish his purposes for, for, for his own providential uh, governing of reality, for our own salvation story and our sanctification process. So we recognize that. We've got a big view of God's sovereignty. But at the other hand, as far as we experience it going through life, we recognize, and this is the sin for which Christ died. How can I continue to, to live in this or do X, Y, and Z? So there's that tension on the one hand. We recognize the sovereignty of God in our sin. We also recognize our responsibility in it as well. And that's that, again, one of those biblical mysteries clearly taught in the Bible. 
can't fully reconcile it, but it's there, and we and we must um, we we must rest in in the uh, the mystery, for lack of a better way of putting it. We must rest in that mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility when it comes to our sin and God's purposes in the midst of all of that. I wanted to point something out before I forget. Um, I, I don't know if you also saw this in the third paragraph particularly, but um, prayer is equally accessible to every Christian. That's another observation we got to make. Um, you have just as much access to God as the greatest Christian who's ever lived. And you're just as saved and you're just as loved by God as they were. God loves Michelle Taylor just as much as he loved the Apostle Paul. And when you've recognized that, it changes everything. Uh, Luke 11, 5 to 13. Um, you know what I was going to say? We don't have time to read it, but um, we're reading Ryle. Why would I not read the scripture? Um, we're going to read the text. I'll read it for us. But just listen to this text. This, this should really just propel us into prayer. And the takeaway from this text is that why would any of us ever not take advantage of the privilege that it is to go before a loving, gracious, heavenly Father who's ultimately working everything out for our sanctification? He's going to make us like Christ. He's going to accomplish our ultimate good because he's gracious and he loves us. Now, Luke eleven five and following, listen to Jesus. He's the master teacher. He says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Be perseverant in prayer. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Suppose one of your, uh, one of your fathers, excuse me, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that giving the Holy Spirit, that, that, that feeling of the Holy Spirit, right? That, um, that idea of when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit, be dominated by the Spirit, be under... Uh, the Spirit's influence. That's what he's talking about here. But the point is, like, if you are an evil, wicked sinner and you can lavish good gifts upon your beloved children, then how much more is God, the perfect, holy, righteous I am, going to do that for those whom he has set his saving love on from before the foundation of the world? That changes everything with prayer. Let's move on now. Uh, Prayer is power, Ryle says. Prayer is power. I need somebody to read that first paragraph under the um, prayer is power subheading and then somebody to read the two right beneath it. Um, So two volunteers to read. Seth, yeah, take that first one and then someone to take the the two underneath. Michelle, go for it. Look through the lives of the brightest and best of God's servants, whether in the Bible or not. See what is written of Moses, David, Daniel, and Paul. 
Mark what is recorded of Luther and Bradford, the Reformers. Observe what is related of the private devotions of Whitefield, Cecil, Ben, Bickersteth, and McShane. Tell me one of all the God goodly fellowships of saints and martyrs who has not had this mark most prominently. He was a man of prayer. Depend upon it. Prayer is power. Mm -hmm. Prayer obtains fresh and continued outpourings of the Spirit. He alone begins the work of grace in a man's heart. He alone can carry it forward and make it prosper. But the good Spirit loves to be entreated. And those who ask most will have most of his influence. Mm -hmm. Prayer is the surest remedy against the devil and besetting sins. That sin will never stand firm, that it is heartily prayed against. Mm -hmm. That devil will never last long keep dominion over us, which we beseech the Lord to cast forth. But then we must spread out all our case before our heavenly physician, if he is to give us daily relief. Amen. Man, I mean, just a, a, few, a few observations really quickly. I won't belabor this. Um, salvation and sanctification, it is... The sovereign accomplishment of the almighty, eternal God. Notice this. He says that the Spirit alone begins the work of grace in a man's heart. That's salvation. That's regeneration. He then says he alone can carry it forward and make it prosper. That's sanctification. That's what's happening right now in our lives as believers. And then notice this. So we see the sovereignty of God and we, and we, and we see the power of God. But then think and consider the love of God. It says the good Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Third person of the Trinity loves to be entreated. God loves you when you come to his throne of grace. Think about that. He wants you to come to him. He what wants you to come. Entreated just, just coming before to, to, to make a petition, to, to ask a request. That, that's what it means to, to offer an entreaty. I'm making a request of you. Um, in a reverent in a, way. Yeah, in a, in a reverent way, of course, of course. We... we Definitely want to emphasize that. Well, the world today makes it as if he's sitting there on pins and needles waiting to see right. if you're going to come. Sure. That's not what that means. Sure. That means that he is a heavenly father right. and that he knows your heart. Absolutely. And when you petition him in a, in a, in a, in earnestly Amen. seeking his, his face, he is there and, and hears your cry. Absolutely. When you come with a, with a fake... You come with a fake agenda. You come with a worldly agenda, with a with a some kind of chant. Yeah. And he knows that it's just fake, and you're going to leave as empty yeah. as you walked up there. Yeah. It's like what James says in James one. You know, um, God's not going to answer your prayer because you're asking with wrong motives. You know, you don't have the right posture. You don't have the right motives. You don't have the right attitude. Absolutely, he's holy. And then the last observation, just that that little um, paragraph right there at the conclusion, section five. Um, prayer leads to victory in the Christian life. Victory over sin, victory over temptation, victory um, over struggles. Um, I love how Ryle draws that out. So prayer is vital to grow in our personal holiness. That is the crux of section five. Um, but really briefly, and, and Ryle doesn't spend much time here. It's, it's less than, less than, it's really just one page if you, if you look at it um, on both pages uh, that we have in our packets. Um, but he brings up a very interesting subject that we need to be mindful of, and I think we've all gone through it, some, or we know somebody at least who's gone through it, and that's the subject of backsliding. 
Um, he, he deals with the relationship between prayer and backsliding in the Christian life. And I, I want us just to make sure we're all on the same page tonight. I want us to make sure we all understand what backsliding means. What does it mean to be in a period of backsliding as a Christian? Does anybody know what that term is referring to? Being in a desert, away from the presence of God, it's like you're you're on your own. You're alone. It's good. Anyone else have any any thoughts? What comes to mind when you when you hear the term backsliding? A little sin. Oh, it's not going to be that bad. Like you know, something that you know is going to tempt you. Mm-hmm. And at least oh, this to, one time, and then it just leads to, and then you're for just, long you're in a yes. habit. You're, you, it soon yes. gets a foothold in you. I think that's that's good as well. Yeah, you're running back to the shackles. We're going back to Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. Through the Israelites. They Right. Go reverting to in your own power, before, and then forgetting that you've relinquished that right. to Christ. Right. Going back to self. So you know that's that's exactly right. I mean, backsliding really it's it's just spiritual regression. It's it's returning to an old pattern or an old sin that you either you walked in as an unbeliever or maybe when you were when you first became saved you battled and and you experienced victory or freedom, but for whatever reason you, you've kind of gone back to it, right? Um, and, and all of us, any Christian can be susceptible to backslide. And this is particularly relevant for you youth who are young in your faith. Um, and I, I'm really not that old in my faith. I've only been a believer now for nine years. So um, I'm a nine-year-old spiritually. Uh, so we all, though, it doesn't matter how old you are in your faith, we all can be susceptible to this. Um, so I want us to, when as we look at this section and I've got some scriptures as well. I know Ryle cites a lot in the sentences, but I've got a few scriptures that um, talk about the dangers of backsliding or the consequences of backsliding. So we're going to look at that. But um, those first, there's a little baby paragraph right there under the subheading, backsliding really happens. Um, and then there's a larger paragraph right beneath it. Would somebody be willing to read that that little chunk of text? I can. Go for it, Alan. I appreciate it. Do you wish to grow in grace and be a devoted Christian? Be very sure if you wish it, you cannot have a more important question than this. Do you pray? I ask whether you pray because neglect of prayer is one great cause of backsliding. There is such a thing as going back in religion after making a good profession. Men may run well for a season, like the Galatians, and then turn aside after false teachers. Men may profess loudly while their feelings are warm, as Peter did, and in the hour of trial, deny the Lord. Men may lose their first love as the Ephesians did. Men may cool down in their zeal to do good, like Mark, the companion of Paul. Men may follow an apostle for a season, and like Demas, go back to the world. All these things men may do. All right, and I'm going to read the last par- that third paragraph there. Really quickly, I'm just going to say, again, Ryle still is talking about Christians. Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between a backsliding Christian and a a um, person who's just professes faith in Christ, but they, they they've always lived in a pattern of unbroken, unrepentant sin. But it's very important to remember, by way of of caveat, we're talking about believers here. That's what Ryle's going for. I'm going to read this third paragraph now, and, and this is this is just so penetrating. Uh, Ryle says it is a miserable thing to be a backslider. 
Of all unhappy things that can befall a man, I suppose it is the worst. A stranded ship, a broken-winged eagle, a garden overrun with weeds, a harp without strings, a church in ruins, all these are sad sights, but a back slider is a sadder sight still. A wounded conscience, a mind sick of itself, a memory full of self-reproach, a heart pierced through with the Lord's arrows, a spirit broken with the load of inward accusation. All this is a taste of hell. It is a hell on earth. Truly that saying of the wise man is Solomon weighty, quoting from King Solomon, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, Proverbs 14, 14. My friends, that is the that, that that is that inward feeling of shame. You know, you feel it when you enter into a season. We, and if you, if you're a Christian long enough, you're going to enter through periodically. You're going to kind of notice your little downward trending, maybe on, on some things, your attitude, um, maybe returning to a sin that that you uh, used to struggle with. There's a lot of different ways backsliding can be manifested. But that feeling of shame—that's what Ryle's trying to cap, capture here in that paragraph. Um, as I prepared for this, um, well, before I share you my thoughts, um, what do you think that we could potentially lose as a result of our backsliding? What's consequences that could come as a result? I want us to talk about that briefly. What can we lose as a backsliding Christian? Exactly right. That's one of my three. So, luck, hopefully, I don't have to talk. You definitely, yeah. You lose your witness, your testimony. That's a Christian. You know that guy that cussed out the the cashier that gave him a wrong burger at KW's. You know that that's a Christian. The the guy that he's he got dr- just drunk the other day at the tailgate. Um. You know, the list goes on and on and on. You lose your Christian witness. Or it's undermined at the very at the very least, it's undermined. Any other thoughts? What could you possibly lose through backsliding? We can you lose your salvation? No. No, right? So we know we can't lose that. Any other thoughts? Sarah? Because whenever you first asked that question, I was like, it's Sarah. I, I, it's I a was, joke from camp. There's always Everyone's this. Everyone's like, Sarah. I was like, I know her name's not Sarah. I know it's not Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I've been calling her Sarah's Hannah for here. a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? Like all this time? I know. Have you been answering? Are you no. wearing the bracelet? No, I haven't worn that. I thought you had an insight. I saw you, you whispering. Well, I was, I was concerned when you first asked that question. I was like, have I gotten it wrong this whole time? No, you haven't gotten it wrong. You haven't gotten it wrong. That's where I thought it was No, you're fine. No, no, no. I was, I was just testing you. I was just testing you. What you were talking about at the beginning, the joy Yeah. You can lose, yeah, you can lose that, that, that realization of joy. You hear that? You can lose the realization of joy. You have it as a believer, but you lose the realization, Absolutely. the experience of it, right? The awareness of it. You're in a you're in a dry place. You're 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 on your own. That's the second of three that I came up with. I'm sure there's more, but I came up with three. <laughs> so are we still trying to figure out what 
figure out what nope, one nope, is. nope. You don't have to figure it out. I just wanted to see if y'all could add no. to so it. So we've gotten two and three, so we still need to figure out one. No, no, you're good. I'll give you the third. Uh, you can lose your assurance of salvation. And that, and that stems also from, from, from joy uh, being lost, um, or the realization of joy being lost. Um, listen, you know, there's two, there's two key texts, really, that I think speak to this. Regarding the loss of the realization of joy and the loss of a Christian witness before others, and um, John Gill agreed with me here, so that gives me uh, confidence that I'm, that I'm on the right track. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you keep the good fight. And then here we go. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's hey, that's church discipline, by the way. I'm going to give you over to your sin, excommunicated, and I'm going to let you. You're going to repent, or you're going to prove that you're not a believer. That's the last step of church discipline. Paul uses that phrase in regards to the incest situation um, in Second Corinthians. And really, what was fascinating what happened when the Corinthians followed Paul's advice to discipline the the, the incestuous couple, they repented. He talks about it in St. Corinthians. They were restored to the church. That's what, Again, that's the goal of church discipline. Discipline is just, the, that's just a, a necessary byproduct of trying to get them to repent and be reconciled and restored to the Christian fellowship they were a part of. Um, but notice, I wrote here um, in 1 Timothy 119a, the first half, we find... Um, it says that faith and good conscience being being rejected or dismissed, that, that that clear conscience you enjoy in your walk with the Lord. If you're backsliding, you, you're going to lose that realization of it for a season until you repent. And then sh- suffering shipwreck in regard to their faith. There's there's First Timothy one nineteen b. What Sam said, your testimony, your your faith has been shipwrecked. Your your testimony has been put in shambles. No one takes you seriously anymore. And then in Second Corinthians. 13.5, which uh, Rob referenced in his sermon on Sunday, um, and I'll read it just for the benefit of us and the listener. Um, Paul writes this. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So there's that need to examine when we are in a period of backsliding. If we're examining our life before the word of God and we see that we're in that sinful lifestyle, you're going to have some doubts maybe for a season. Man, like I got to get my, I got to get my act together here. Have I been faking it all along? Especially if you're a young Christian, this is so important. The great, like one of the best gifts of God's grace and sanctification is time. Because if you have enough time from the moment that you profess faith in Christ, you should see evidence the hardest part is when you first make a profession and you're struggling with something. That is when most people struggle the most with assurance. Not all people, but there, there is a reality there. But if you have enough time there, the Lord in His grace gives you victory. He gives you evidence. He gives you fruit. And that will bolster your assurance of salvation. So just something to think about there. Um, 
regarding the implications or consequences of backsliding. Anybody have any thoughts on that before we continue here? We're almost done. Right, that immediate knee jerk repentance and all that. Yeah. Two years in. Yeah. Was I really saved? I don't feel as on fire now. Yeah. Not on fire. I don't hear him like I heard him before. And then you know, over time, you realize like this is a marathon, not a sprint. Yep. That's right. Yep. That's a great thought. So now um, we're going to look at uh, Ryle. He, he has a, another subheading here, the cause of backsliding, and this is this is just terrific. Um, I need a volunteer to read the first paragraph. It's it's very uh, small on page 13, and there's only three lines on page 14. So, um, Banana, you got that one. And then the second paragraph on page 14. Someone who uh, hasn't read, I think, two or three times. Um, All right, Samantha, you can take it. Thank you. (laughs) It says, now, what is the cause of most backslidings? I believe, as a general rule, one of the chief causes is neglect of private prayer. Of course, the secret history of Paul's will not be known until the last day. I can only give my opinion as a minister of Christ and a student of the heart. That opinion is, I repeat distinctly, that backsliding generally first begins with neglect of private prayer. Mm. Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, journeys undertaken without prayer, residences chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, Mm. the daily act of private prayer itself hurried over Mm. or gone through without heart. These are the kind of downward steps by which many a Christian descends to the condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows him to have a tremendous fall. This is the process which forms the lingering lots, the unstable Samsons, the wife-idolizing Solomons, the inconsistent Asas, the pliable Jehoshaphats, the over-careful Marthas, of whom so many are to be found in the Church of Christ. Often the simple history of such cases is this. They became careless about private prayer. I'll tell you what, like as soon as I left the office, wow. I was going to the gym. I was I was like, Lord, I've got to pray because this is this is just penetrating to the he soul. All the bases, he, has, he? he has to have lived this. Like, he didn't know he was he was regarded as more, like literally the godliest man of his day. Like well, every he, he experienced it. Experienced yeah. it. Oh yeah. Like, to, yes. to know the consequences, like yeah. he's like this is so. Yeah. He's not preaching. He's not saying, hey, this is... This well, is not I'm abstract. He's yeah. saying, this is what I've experienced yeah. in, my, in my walk. Well, That's, like, I've got goosebumps right down my not, spine right now. This is so good. He came from like an incredibly wealthy family. All he ever knew was like the top of Mountain View. And then when everything came tumbling down, somehow in order to recover... You know, he goes he into ministry, <laughs> which can't be easy, isn't mm-hmm. easy. You know, so he's he's been on top of it all in a worldly sense and then really on top of it all in a godly mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. So, and then it makes me think, like, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he lived this. But when I first read it, and oh, I said this before, I just thought, 
Like, where does this guy live? Is he local? I wish. Well, y'all might not be it. Y'all might not be here tonight if he was down the street. So I'll be at his house right now. Um, and I would, I would be too. So uh, we'd all be there together. Um, so I, I, have, I have two questions now. These are, these are I, think, I think one's kind of an abstract question. Um, I gave my best, as always, I did my best to be biblical in my answer, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, but the second question, it's cut and dried. It's, it's nuts and bolts, biblical Christianity. But let me ask him. First question. Start here. Why do you think God allows Christians to undergo backsliding in the first place? Um, God is sovereign. He likes Go to see it. me cry. Go be humbled. <laughs> Absolutely right. Is that what she wrote? <laughs> I wrote it. No, she said it. She said it. She said it in a. And, uh, in a. She said it in three <laughs> words. <laughs> Mine is. <laughs> What did I write here? Uh, that 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 is that that's the gist of it. Um, I. Uh, yeah. yeah. No. So, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, I'll read. I'll read you. I'll read you my attempt to be theological. Um, that that was the better. That was the better answer. Um, I said. I said. My opinion, I think God allows us to um, go through backsliding the Christian life as a way of reminding us of our calling as Christians and, and in doing so to discipline us, um, to remind us of the joy that we had at salvation that can only come through a union with him, communion with him. Um, I think he allows us to enter into seasons of backsliding that um, he can also show us a different side of his character. You know, and, and, and this isn't because God delights in sin, because he doesn't. He uses sin for his own glory and to, and to accomplish his purposes. But if you've never been disciplined by God, you, you lose out on something of that part of his character. Um, think about it. Like God, why did God decree from eternity past a world with sin? Well, God is a holy God, which means that when he is confronted with sin— He's going to execute judgment or wrath upon that sin. So the only way his holiness could really be put on display is in a world or a creation that fell into sin. There's probably billions of other reasons why God did this. That's a very small, I mean, minuscule reason for why he created a world that's a world with sin. But regarding why he allows us to backslide, like God's powerful enough. Like we could be saved and immediately made into Christ moral character. We could. He could do that. He doesn't do it, though. I think part of it is consequence for sin. We've got to learn to to labor and grind it out in a fallen world and fight against sin. But I think there's also that reality that God, we're not, we're just the supporting cast. God is the main character, and he's going to put himself on display in his creation. And one of the ways he can do that for his own glory and the good of the creature is to show what it looks like to lovingly, graciously discipline those who belong to him who've gone astray. So Hannah's was the simple explanation. That's my, I, I thought, you know, it took me several minutes to, you know, write all that out. You see the, the, the uh, illegible and microscopic penmanship there. But that, that, that's my, I wasn't going to say it, but. That's my best bet. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on that question before number two? Hannah, if you, if you say another uh, three word response that, 
undermines my 50 or 60 <laughs> words, we're going to have problem. <laughs> Not, I'm just kidding. No, you did a great job. You're, Whenever I'm I first got to say, I used to get, like you were talking about, you you know, you're, you're on fire and you're, you're reading and you're, you're, you're just in awe right. of the grace and, and to know that you belong. And as you go, you start thinking, I need to do this, 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 I need to do this. And there's times that the guy just pulls his hand back and you're stepping out there and you get overwhelmed and you're like, Oh my gosh, how am I, what, what, what's going on? And it's, and, and I believe this is Hannah said is to humble you and remind you, you can't do anything. You can't outrun God. And, and right. so the thing is, is I don't know how many times that I was standing on top of a tank battery, looking out over a field and just broken and saying, God, what is wrong? And then you would feel like a, a peace. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm still here. I've got you. I haven't gone. Yeah. I still got yeah. you. You know, and that's just to remind you that you don't do this. You're, you're a servant. That's right. And you can only go as far as God allows you to go and, and, and no farther. And you can't do it on your own. And it's like God is saying, you're not going to outrun me. I have a plan. I have a purpose. It's not by what you want. So... Right. I agree. When you said it, I'm like, that's exactly right. how to ride right. a bike. And it's like, that, well, for me, that's there. That's there. But it's, and you know that he's not leaving you. Mm-hmm. But at some point, those hands have to come off because he's held you that far. Right. And now he's leading you into doing this new good Work. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a gr- really good analogy. Y'all both know really good fe- uh, feedback there. Any other thoughts on this? I think on the other side of that, like, restoration after the backsliding, like, it's a little glimpse of heaven, feeling that grace. Right. Absolutely. That, mm-hmm. He lets okay, you hear you know, a song like, or read a scripture. It's, it's like, like that man. little break you get in the marathon, you know, yeah. you just stop oh. and you got to walk for a little bit get ready to go again. And then you're at peace and you're like, okay. Wow. You're at peace. Man, these are, these are excellent guys. Very, very well stated uh, responses. Um, so second question briefly, um, and I think y'all probably know the answer. I don't think, I don't think it'll take y'all too long, or at least I hope it doesn't take y'all too long. Um, uh, well, cause I, I, I think, I think you guys have, I think you guys, you guys are, are tracking. What's the difference then? What's the ultimate difference that can be observed or discerned from a backsliding Christian and the false professor of faith? What's the difference? What's going to be present in a backsliding Christian's life that will never be present in the unbeliever? Whether it be a false professor or somebody who's just not a Christian, wants nothing to do with Christianity. What do you think, Canna? Conviction. Okay, conviction, which which what which, which does what that produces repentance, and 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 what is it? Okay, that that is that's it. Now, and what is it? And what is it that brings the repentance? What is it that brings the repentance? You did conviction, which leads to repentance, and what's the what's the cause of allowing all of that to happen? So you did it. Conviction, repentance. That's okay. I'll get that's man's side. That's man's side. So we we feel conviction. We repent, but what? brought about all of that was it me that just figured it out as i was walking in that lifestyle 
What's that? Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, and then what is he doing though? What's that word? It starts with a D. He's delivering, delivering close, Dis- disciplining us. That's right. Discern. Uh, yeah, it's there. Disciple. And, and that might have been, I, I might have been, I might have been going, I might have been going too much there, but flip to Hebrews really quickly. This, I hope this encourages you. Flip to Hebrews 12. Conviction and repentance. That's, that's the, that's the main answer. I just wanted us to, I wanted us to get God's side of the coin. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a. Yeah, Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 11. Keep this in mind. This is a good reminder for you and for me. So, the author to Hebrews writes, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's Hebrews 12, 4-11. My friends... God loves you and he loves me so much that he's not going to let you remain in a prolonged state of unrepentant sin because he's going to, he's zealously passionate about bringing you back to repentance and teaching you about his character and, 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 and enabling you to, um, to walk a sanctified lifestyle. But also, God being the main character of reality. God's also zealous for his own glory. And though he's got his purposes in allowing us to walk in a, in a season of backsliding from time to time, he's not going to let us just completely wipe out our Christian testimony and, or absolutely lose assurance of salvation. God's zealous for his own glory. He's zealous for our eternal good as well. So those are some thoughts for us to have. And lastly, by way of close, I'm just going to read the last section here of chapter 6. And Ryle writes the following words. He says, You may be very sure men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Like Peter, they first disregard the Lord's warning to watch and pray. And then like Peter, their strength is gone. And in the hour of temptation, they deny their Lord. The world takes notice of their fall and scoffs loudly. But the world knows nothing of the real reason. The heathen succeeded in making a well-known Christian offer incense to an idol by threatening him with a punishment worse than death. Then they triumphed greatly at the sight of his cowardice and apostasy. But the heathen did not know the fact of which history informs us. 
that on that very morning he left his bedchamber hastily and without finishing his usual prayers. If you are a Christian indeed, I trust you will never be a backslider. But if you do not wish to be a backsliding Christian, remember the question I ask you. Do you pray? My friends, application, this is what we take home. Men fall in private long before they fall in public. They're backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. MacArthur said it. He who has fallen did not fall far. It all starts in your private prayer life. It all starts with who you are behind closed doors with the living God. And I pray that that reality will motivate us greatly to vibrant lifestyles of prayer. And now as we bring our lesson for tonight to a conclusion and we enter into our time of corporate prayer, um, I, I hope that that we will be those who, who never undervalue the benefit and the privilege and blessing that it is to come before God in prayer. Because as we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. And in doing so, we will become like Christ. Thank you for listening to the listener. I pray that this message was an encouragement to your soul. And I hope that you will be led to go near to God in prayer now as we bring this lesson to a conclusion. Thank you for listening and God bless.